afternoon and welcome to the 212th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today is a COVID Calls congressional discussion with Representative Brendan Boyle of the Pennsylvania 2nd Congressional District. Following my discussion with Representative Boyle, I'll talk with pandemic media expert, Dr. Katie Foss. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. And you can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, January 29th, 2021, there are 2,194,790 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 25,789,000 cases reported in the United States. There are 433,622 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States today, and that's up from 430,643 reported yesterday. As of today, there have been 21,350 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm gonna jump into my introductions today with my first guest, really excited to have him on the program. Let me introduce him, Representative Brendan F. Boyle was born and raised in the Olney neighborhood of Pennsylvania's second congressional district. As the son of a janitor and school crossing guard, Congressman Boyle was the first in his family to attend college. He went to the University of Notre Dame on academic scholarship where he earned a bachelor's degree in government and he later attended graduate school at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He was elected to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in 2008, the first Democrat to represent Pennsylvania's 170th state legislative district, which includes parts of Montgomery County in Philadelphia. And in 2010, he was joined in the state legislature by his brother, Representative Kevin J. Boyle, making them the first brothers to serve together in the Pennsylvania State House of Representatives. In 2014, he was elected to Congress by citizens of the 13th Congressional District representing Northeast Philadelphia, part of North Philadelphia and approximately half of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Since first entering public service, Congressman Boyle has served as a champion for working and middle-class families, in particular issues relating to social and economic justice. I'm thrilled to have him on COVID calls today. Representative Boyle, thank you for joining me. Yeah, I think this is great that you're doing, Scott, and I'm happy to join you. Let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Yeah, well, I'm like most members of Congress, I, I essentially spend half of my week in one city, Washington, and the other half uh, back home in the district in Philadelphia. So where I am right now is in my office uh, in, in the Capitol. And so in Washington, D.C., as of this morning, uh, right off this, the D.C. government's website, there have been 36,132 COVID cases and 902 deaths due to COVID. What are some of the protocols right now around the, the house, just in terms of keeping safety as a fully masked environment? Well, <laughs> you wouldn't think this invites a political answer, but 
Um, the reality is that the overwhelming majority of people, uh, and not just members, but really the Capitol Complex and Capitol Hill is a pretty small space of a few thousand different people who, uh, who work here. When you think of the members are actually a relatively small percentage of the people who work around here. Staff makes up um, the bulk of folks who work on the Hill, but then support staff, security guards, Capitol Police, um, all sorts of, of things that you wouldn't exactly think about. So even with most of the staffs like mine teleworking uh, or telecommuting, you still have a few thousand people who are here. And so masks um, have been the norm. They're required on the House floor. Uh, but in the beginning, you might, uh, when I have noticed and when I said that it invites a political, not necessarily a political answer, but a difference between the two political parties, since about June, uh, or when June was when we returned physically to session uh, after about a two-month um, break when we were only really working virtually except for coming down for a vote and then quickly leaving. So from June through now, 100% of Democratic members have been wearing masks, requiring their staffs to wear masks, et cetera. And in June, it was probably about 70% of my Republican colleagues. Uh, once President Trump, you might remember for about three months, he was not wearing a mask, he was resistant. And then finally, his staff was able to get to him and, and he relented. Once he did that, it had a real impact on the Republican side. And I would say it moved their numbers. And, and I, this is anecdotal, but mm -hmm. just, you know, I tend to pay attention. I would say it moved it from about 70% to 90%. And, but there is still that 10% on the Republican side that absolutely refuse to, uh, to wear a mask. I thank you for those details. And I have to say, it's also extraordinary that we would be even having a conversation of the percentage of members of Congress, which would be wearing a life-saving device in the middle of a pandemic. But that's where we are. And I've been so looking forward to speaking with you on many things. I want to start really with January 6th. Um, you've been, you've discussed it already in other places, but I was looking forward to this chance to ask you about that day. What, what was your day like? Yeah. Well, first, before I answer that, believe it or not, um, there's something in common with what we just discussed because that, that 10% of Republican members who refuse to wear a mask, they also, there's a tremendous overlap between that group and the folks who were the most active on January 6th in terms of challenging the electoral college spreading the big lie, spreading QAnon conspiracies. We're actually talking about the same people. Um, now, in terms of how that day was for me, I was, I'm literally sitting where I was uh, on January 6th. The um, Republican members of the House who had decided they were going to challenge the legally cast electoral votes in this presidential election, um, they decided they were going to do it uh, and target six states of which Pennsylvania was one of the six. And in fact, in many ways, we've featured the most in, in the arguments that you heard. So um, about a week out, uh, the, the House leadership, the Speaker of the House had asked me and other of my Democratic colleagues from Pennsylvania um, to prepare to speak on the House floor to defend the votes from Pennsylvania um, and to speak for, uh, for five minutes each. So I was sitting here at my desk, and you can't see it, but I have a, a TV where I can monitor what's going on on the House floor. I have the window right here, and if I were to contort my body and angle myself back there, you can 
see the, the Capitol building. Um, and then about 20 feet from here is to the hallway. So um, I say that because I was literally sitting here finishing uh, my speech on what I was going to say to defend Pennsylvania's electoral votes while trying to, out of the corner of my eye, pay attention with what's going on and then noticing that, wait a minute, this crowd's getting bigger and, and they're on the floor steps. And then outside this window, I could see and hear what was going on. And very quickly, I, I, it's hard to describe. It takes longer to describe this. Um, things can accelerate very quickly. Um, and so it went from, Jesus, there might be something going on here to within about 10, 15 minutes of seeing the tear gas smoke, hearing the flash bombs, hearing the, the loud crowd, um, getting, as I'm sitting here working on the lower right screen of my computer screen, I'd be getting USCP alerts, United States Capitol Police mm -hmm. alert mm -hmm. about evacuating. Now we don't evacuate, shelter in place. Um, so I was literally sitting right here uh, when it all began. What a surreal experience. And your staff had to, you all had to go into a lockdown situation at that point? Yeah. So, and by the way, where it's, it's funny how arbitrary things like alphabetical order can mm. impact um, what happens. Since Pennsylvania begins with a P, um, we were going to be uh, expected to be the fifth of the six states to be challenged. Mm -hmm. So we, I, we knew from Pennsylvania we weren't going to speak until later that night at the earliest, um, which is why I was able to be here instead of on the House floor. Had William Penn decided to put an A before the name of our state, I would have been on the House floor because Arizona just was up uh, first. So my, my colleagues who were defending that vote were, were there and, and stuck in that. Now, we sheltered in place in uh, my office, had the doors locked, all the lights turned off, our electronics silenced, which is what the Capitol Police told us to do. We could hear the mayhem both outside my window and then the kind of yelling in, in the hall. Um, and when you hear that sort of commotion, you don't know if it's from the Capitol Police or if it's from the rioters. Uh, at some point, I would say about an hour and a half or two hours into it, Capitol Police came into our office, grabbed me, and a few of the, my staffers who were here physically um, joined me, and we were taken to the safe room. But there we get back to COVID because in the safe room, first you had a lot of people kind of elbow to elbow, but then you also had that 10% who refused to wear a mask. Um, and so it, it's, um, while it was called a safe room, I did not feel safe from COVID there. And that prompted me and my staff to actually shortly thereafter leave the safe room and head back to our office where we thought we'd be safer from COVID. Thank you for sharing those details of my representative here. I live in New Jersey is Bonnie Watson Coleman, whom I have enormous respect for. I think she's tremendous. And, and, you know, she's, she came down with COVID after that and she's a cancer survivor. It's, it's right. just unbelievable. Um, the layers of risk that you're describing. I want to just, um, you know, I'm going to read just a sentence here. You published a tremendous op-ed uh, in the Philadelphia Inquirer just after these events. You said, those who stormed the Capitol looking to cause violence are clearly a threat, but the larger threat is posed by the unprincipled people, including political leaders who concoct and disseminate hate, conspiracy theories, and lies. I, I, want, I was moved by that. And I want to read that also because to me, I've been looking, searching for these connections between this pandemic year 
that yeah. we have lived through and what happened on January 6th. I feel like they're connected, but I'm really curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, they are. And in fact, it, it, it's funny, I didn't know that was where you were going, but already previously I, I made the connection myself because they absolutely are. The conspiratorial extreme nature of this, the, the sort of conspiracies that we've had to face in terms of COVID, the pandemic isn't real, plandemic, it's really a George Soros funded plot involving Bill Gates and God knows who else. Um, those sort of conspiracies that, that have really impacted our ability as a society to be able to combat COVID. It's that same sort of poison that um, brought us to where we were on January 6th. And the point I, I was attempting to make in that Philadelphia Inquirer op-ed, which was written actually um, the, the night everything happened as I was sitting on the House floor because we didn't finish until 3.40 in, in the morning. Um, I wanted to make sure the, the point was made that it's not just a thousand or so people who broke into the Capitol and um, created destruction. It's also the leaders who poisoned them and their minds to the point that have prompted them to do this. It's both. And moving forward, the biggest danger by far is the latter. But I, I want to follow up with that. You know, I mean, now you've got to get back to governing. Um, I mean, you're, you're part of it in the House in terms of the in, impeachment vote is, is over. We'll see what happens in the, in the Senate. And Trump is out of office. But somehow um, you face a challenge of trying to bring back the American public faith in governance, in science. Uh, I know it's not completely eroded. People have enormous amount of faith in people like Dr. Fauci. But I'd like to hear um, sort of the, your thinking and some of your planning as you come into the new Congress. How are you going to rebuild that trust, particular legislation you think might address that? You know, it, it's not going to be easy, but this is where I think, um, and I, interest of full disclosure, I was a longtime, I am a longtime supporter of, of Joe Biden and um, supported him throughout the, the campaign. This is where I think we are fortunate to have someone like him with a lot of years ex of experience who isn't someone who is attempting to grab the headlines or throw bombs. This is a period in which if we want to restore people's faith in government, do the uh, not sexy, boring work of making government work. If we see that we're able to have a government that can finally effectively get um, vaccinations to people, and, and finally then people are starting to get back to work and live their lives like we knew prior to early March of last year, I think that that will do uh, an enormous amount of good. I also just think um, part of this you can't legislate, but it's stylistically. If you have, you know, again, good, decent, <laughs> boring um, public servants doing their jobs and showing that they have competence and uh, what it takes to do the job, I, again, I think that that will do a world of good in terms of restoring people's faith. I think we've also been reminded the last four years why government matters and the idea that you can just take someone off the street um, because they're a commentator on Fox News and suddenly put that person in an in a important position uh, without any experience or expertise is just a disaster.
good, decent, boring public servants. Yeah. Now, you had to run for re-election. I'm assuming that wasn't what was on your, <laughs> your banner, although maybe it was. I don't know. What was it like um, running for re-election in a pandemic? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Maybe, uh, you know, uh, make boring great again. Um, uh, maybe I should trademark that slogan for a hat. Um, no, I, you know, generally when one's campaigning, it, it tends to be issue based. And also talking about what you've done for your district and constituents. It's some sort of combination of the two. I think the media tends to, you know, focus almost exclusively on the political and policy issues and oftentimes ignores the importance of the constituent service side. Um, our ability throughout the pandemic to help people get their stimulus checks when they weren't getting them, apply for PPP, nurses who didn't have PPE in the very beginning, we were able to help them with getting donations and deliver it. That sort of, there was a, a political scientist who wrote a uh, book a long time ago called Home Cooking. And uh, it was about exactly that, the importance of being able to deliver good constituent service it's a combination of the two in most campaigns that you tend to talk about the, the issues, the policy work, but then also, you know, what you've actually been able to do when people have come to you needing help. How's the vaccination rollout going in your district? I mean, I, I, it's a little complicated because you're a federal official, you have yeah. state officials, and there's the city as well. There's a lot of federalism at work there, but what's your view of it? Yeah, no. And, one of the things I, I mean, I first learned as a state legislator, and, and it's still true today, very few people know federalism. Um, all the time in our our DC, our uh, district offices, we will get people coming in with city issues. And when I was a state legislator, we would get people coming in with a social security issue. Um, so that can be a little bit frustrating because, you know, if, if you're a member of Congress representing a big city like Philadelphia, and so many people have issues that are at the city level, you can't directly do something about it, yet at the same time, you can't just say, well, sorry, that's not us, uh, please leave. That That's not going to be right. something that flies. So what we've gotten pretty good is, is essentially building relationships with people at the city level to be able to help constituents uh, when, it, when it is a, a city issue. My role in terms of the vaccine delivery and the vaccinations has really been more at the macro policy level and less specific to Philadelphia. Although um, this past week, there has been a, a controversy that I have um, gotten a little bit involved in, in terms of attempting to understand what exactly happened with this group that um, was chosen by the city to deliver vaccinations and turns out uh, might not have been the wisest choice. The other disaster that uh, was layered on top of the pandemic this past year, not a surprise um, to communities of color in the United States, but you know the the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. Um, you know, I think those inequalities also refracted back through the pandemic um, were startling to many. Many people who maybe had thought racial justice was an old fight in America, you represent part of Philadelphia. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that time period through the spring and summer, how you reacted to it and, and how you'll continue to talk about those issues, particularly in light of health justice and the call for health justice in Philadelphia. Yeah, I, I mean, it was pretty remarkable that right around Memorial, the week after Memorial Day um, in Philadelphia and throughout the country, you had the, um, 
biggest uh, civil rights, essentially, protests, and then in some places going into riots, um, the biggest since the 1960s. At the same time, you had our biggest pandemic in a century, and um, it, very difficult to manage one of those, let, let alone two. Specific to COVID, though, you know, these sort of uh, inequities in healthcare were not created by COVID. What COVID has done is show uh, essentially a mirror to those inequities. And we have seen it in terms of African-Americans and also Latino and Latina Americans who have disproportionately gotten COVID and died from it. And I think there are many reasons why, but primarily two. First, we know that those of us who are in the knowledge economy who are able to work via Zoom uh, and other technologies we have an easier time going about our work um, virtually than someone who is a waiter, than someone who's a waitress, than someone who is working in a blue collar job that requires you to show up and interact with a lot of people. Uh, my father, as you mentioned, uh, used to be a janitor for SEPTA. He was right on the Broad Street line. He's retired now, but uh, had he had this been five years ago when he was still working, in a normal day, in a pretty tight space, you would interact with hundreds and hundreds of people. Uh, and guess what? Uh, while my father is, is, as you would have guessed, white, um, the reality is disproportionately in America, those sort of low-wage jobs are performed by African-Americans and Latino and Latino-Americans. Um, and so that was one of the reasons. And then the other is in terms of access to healthcare, that once they uh, got COVID, had much worse outcomes, even when you control for uh, if you account and say, okay, we don't want to, we want to even things so that we're just looking at people who've gotten COVID. So uh, forget the fact that they were disproportionately more likely to get it. Control for that. Even then, they had worse health outcomes, those minority communities. Well, Democrats, at least for now, control the legislative branch and the executive branch. What's your outlook in terms of moving legislation that can address um, the two pieces. You, I, I like the way you just broke that down in terms of COVID and, and COVID holding up a mirror to those inequities which are of long standing. I know in one Congress you can't uh, undo structural racism uh, with the stroke of a pen, right. but I am curious, you know, what kind of momentum you think that this Congress can gather, particularly in the uh, in the early months here going into 2021? Yeah, I, I have to say from January 20th on, uh, I've been pretty optimistic. You know, January 20th, I mean, literally exactly two weeks to the day that we had the insurrection, I was sitting on the exact spot in the west front of the Capitol where hand-to-hand -hand combat was taking place between members of the Capitol Police and DC Police and, and the rioters. Um, two weeks later, in exactly the same spot, Joe Biden is being sworn in as, as president of the United States and a transfer of power takes place. Um, also that same day, that afternoon, the Senate flipped three new Democratic senators, the uh, two from Georgia and Kamala Harris's uh, replacement or successor in California, they were sworn in, and so at that point forward, we, we, my side has had control of the Senate. And the reality is that does make things much easier, having one party control of all three, that White House, the House, and the Senate. So right now, and as I'm sitting here at my desk, what I was working on before this, 
uh, is the COVID-19 relief package. I think that it is going to be tremendously robust. President Biden's plan calls for 1.9 trillion. I think that it will be right around that scale, which would make it, by the way, the second um, largest bill in American history. I think that it will have more direct relief payments. I want to make sure we get up to the $2,000, which which I had favored. Um, but there's also so much more than that. You know, one of the things that gov the federal government hasn't done at all um, is direct aid to our state and local governments. In a place like Philadelphia, that really matters. Um, so I, I'm I'm pretty optimistic, actually, for as difficult as the last year has been. I would say, as I sit here today, I'm pretty optimistic moving forward. Well, thanks for sharing that optimism. At, at the same time, even though his Twitter account has been suspended, um, former President Trump seems to be still focused on disinformation. Uh, and, and I wonder what, what you think about that. We don't have to talk about Trump necessarily, but you know the, the disinformation and conspiracy that's sort of out there in the ecosystem now, which you wrote about in that Inquirer piece, that's concerning to me. It must be concerning to you. Just to return to that, um, are you worried about that? And I, I so unfortunately, on, so yes, I am very worried about it. And I actually was even before January sixth. Um, but I have to say, as optimistic as I am about passing meaningful pieces of legislation here that will make a real difference in people's lives, I'm not optimistic when it comes to combating these sort of conspiracy theories. Um, I, I hope someone can convince me otherwise, but I have to say I don't see an end to them in sight. I think it's very difficult in this media environment. You know, while I'm one of the younger members of, of Congress, although no longer one of the, the youngest, but I am on the younger side, nonetheless, I remember growing up in the 1980s when there were only three big TV networks. Fox didn't even exist, let alone Fox News. It was ABC, CBS, NBC. You got your news, um, those evening telecasts. Uh, there were two major and still are major newspapers in, uh, in Philadelphia. Um, people were listening to generally the same radio stations. And that was it. I mean, big traditional media was a gatekeeper. And that was the case, you think about it, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, even going into the early 90s until cable really caught on. Um, we had a pretty stable media landscape in which people, for the most part, were getting their information from the same sources, and they were legitimate sources. Um, nowadays, it's wild, wild west. I mean, billions and billions of websites, social media, um, things that I didn't even know existed before QAnon kind of um, became known over the last year. I don't know how we put that genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, um, absent of just strongly encouraging education in the United States and, um, and civic responsibility, I, I, I really am at a loss for answers in that. And I would say in the short term, I, I'm not optimistic moving forward about how we combat that. Well, we're almost up on time uh, with this part of COVID calls today, and, and um, appreciate your attention to those divisive aspects and your sharing your frank concerns about that in terms of the messy media ecosystem we live in. I guess I'd like to just get, you know, as we close out, maybe you'd share with us a, a story or a, 
an image, something you remember from this last year um, that really sticks with you, that you think, you know, going forward, you know, this is what I remember about the pandemic, maybe even something that where you saw community coming coming together. We saw such wild extremes last year. I'm always curious to know from the perspective of a legislator, what sticks in their memory? Well, there's a lot. I, I'm trying to think of one um, specifically, I, I guess, you know, I mean, the fact that outside of my district office, one of my district offices in the only neighborhood of Philadelphia, which as you pointed out, is actually uh, where I grew up. Um, a group of us were delivering boxes of PPE to nurses at, we have a number of hospitals in North Philly uh, where nurses and were just working 24 seven and had come to me to meet with me and tell me that they did not have proper PPE and, and that we were able to, to do that and deliver it. And by the way, where we got, uh, where we were able to make the connection and deliver that PPE, it was a group of Chinese American um, business leaders in Northeast Philadelphia. And think of the way Chinese people, but Chinese Americans have been targeted, Absolutely. including by the former president in this COVID. Actually, the folks who were responsible for getting us the PPE were our fellow American citizens uh, who are of Chinese birth or, or Chinese descent. And the, the nurses that we were helping were a pretty diverse group, but primarily African-American, helping primarily African-American, um, though not exclusively, patients. And, and I thought that, you know, that that's actually the best of America. Um, and, and, and so that is one memory that sticks out. And then the other is, and, and I'm sure many books and movies will be books written and movies made about the first 10 days or two weeks in, in March. Things so quickly accelerated from, boy, this, this thing might be a real concern to then suddenly that Wednesday when the NBA is canceling the season, Tom Hanks has it, March Madness is being canceled. Very quickly, within a short time period, went from people still not having heard about it to now suddenly life as we know it has changed. That will always stick in my mind. Well, there we have some some hope and optimism to close with. And I want to just thank U.S. Representative Brendan Boyle, first of all, for all you do, uh, for being vocal at this time and for taking time out of your enormously busy schedule to talk with me on COVID calls today. Thank you and good luck for this Congress. No, thank you. Okay, we're going to move to the second part of our conversation here today. And let me introduce my second guest, uh, who I think was in the green room for part of that conversation that I had with Representative Boyle. So I'll be wanting to get her perspective on that as, as well. Dr. Katie Foss is a, media, uh, is a media studies professor in the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at Middle Tennessee University, where she teaches courses in media literacy health, communication, and gender studies. She's the author of Constructing the Outbreak, Epidemics in Media and Collective Memory, Breastfeeding in Media, Exploring Conflicting Discourses that Threaten Public Health, and Television and Health Responsibility in an Age of Individualism. Dr. Foss edited the Graduate Student Guidebook from Orientation to Tenure Track, 
beyond princess culture, gender, and children's marketing, and demystifying the big house, exploring prison experience and media representations. Katie Foss, thanks so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, I'd like to start out, if I could, just uh, find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Well, I'm calling in from Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, and the pandemic situation is dire according to the numbers, but you wouldn't necessarily know it if you were out and about in town. As, uh, as uh, you can see from the various maps available, we have very few restrictions here in Tennessee. Since you were able to catch a little of that conversation with Brendan Boyle, I wonder if you heard his comment at the end there where I asked him about disinformation. Mm -hmm. And I, I like it when members of Congress give an honest answer. Uh, and his answer, I thought, was to me is pretty striking, which is he doesn't really know what to do. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I thought his answer was both honest and fascinating. And I also thought to myself that we must be about the same age based on how he described yeah. Yeah, the, the media general. landscape in the yeah. 1980s. Sure. Uh, well, it is a huge problem with the fragmentation in the media and the current uh, landscape that we have when you have so many choices uh, and so many of these echo chambers that people kind of head into and then don't get out of just kind of cycling through uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation it's really hard to pull people out of, of those echo chambers. Uh, I will say a little bit more optimistically, on the other hand, we're getting, uh, you know, so many more voices in media, you know, in our media landscape that with uh, the creation of all these different kinds of platforms and opportunities, people that we've never heard of in the past or groups of people that we would have never heard of are suddenly being able to tell their own stories. So there is an, kind of an upside of that. Uh, but certainly it's really hard to combat the disinformation once it's out there, and it's definitely out there. So maybe setting disinformation aside and just mm -hmm. talking a little bit more about mainstream media coverage, as a media scholar yourself, it must be, um, it, you're probably like hanging out with me. I always ruin uh, movies for people. I ruin books for people because I'm always the sort of historian who's like, well, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. No, it must be watching the news with you must be kind of a trip because you're uh, probably always have that meta experience of, of trying to make sense of, of the coverage and then the frame around the coverage. I, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about how you, it may be hard to generalize, but some of the themes you've noted about COVID-19 coverage. Oh, well, first of all, there has not been enough of it. And that might mm. seem a little odd because it feels like we're steeped in it all the time and it's so pervasive. But at the same time, we're not getting the kind of coverage that generally resonates with a population to persuade them to change behavior. And what I mean by that, especially on a local level or even kind of a regional level, we're not seeing really enough of what is going on at the local hospitals. We're not seeing enough of kind of mourning and rituals around mourning uh, of memorializing the dead. Uh, we're not seeing enough of people telling their own stories and their own experiences with this really horrific disease. So while we had a lot of this kind of macro coverage and a lot of debate in the macro coverage, we're really not getting those stories that we need to get uh, to really start helping making a difference. I wonder, let's go a little further with that because that has struck me as, as well. And I'm glad you said that you, you haven't seen enough coverage and particularly on that. I mean, is that just an access issue that reporters, um, even long form journalists don't seem to be able to get great access into the sites where mm -hmm. care is being delivered? Or is it more that that's just not 
driving clicks, people hooked up to it, you know, people intubated is not what media consumers want to see, but the latest Trump tweet is. I don't want to make it more basic than it is, but it has seemed like that to me. I think it's actually both. So I think it's an access issue that early on in the pandemic, we weren't letting journalists in to really take those photos. And still, we are not seeing a lot of inside the hospital coverage. But we're also just uh, kind of, we've had this trend of just not really telling this story in the same way that I've seen studying past epidemics, uh, in which not only would all of the different news stories be about the epidemic, about the outbreak, about the sorrow, about just how dire life had become, but you'd also see a lot of different personal experiences. Hmm. So somewhat shared, I would say, on social media, but not enough. And Maybe. because of that, we're not, we're, I, I don't think that a lot of people take this seriously because they don't feel like it is serious because it's framed as not serious. That's interesting. There's such a, a bind there, a tension there about um, disaster coverage not moving over into what sometimes is called a sort of disaster porn mm -hmm. You know, with the camera crew rolls up and we saw a lot of this after Katrina camera crew rolls up. There's a house turned over dramatic shot of a house mm -hmm. uh, looks like Wizard of Oz or or something. And they're snapping away. And you're thinking, no, I mean, people may have died in that house. I mean, a lot of that coverage happened in the moment. It's riveting. And we've also been. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I, any reaction is interesting. Uh, I was going to say that, that I think part of that is that we've been in this so long. So unlike any past pandemic or epidemic, we've never had a moment where we had quite such a prolonged time in which we're in this pandemic zone. Now, we could look at 1918 and say, well, they were, but they didn't know it. They didn't know it. So it really only felt serious and intense and part of everyday life for about six weeks, depending on where you were at um, in the world or in the U.S. So I, I think that that's part of it, too. But yeah, the kind of aha, oh my gosh, it's here, hasn't happened at the same way. Now, we've had parts in which you had it like there's a lot of um coverage within italian hospitals when it hit italy before it came to the u.s uh, and some of that certainly with new york and a little bit with texas but um, it hasn't been pervasive and widespread and localized at least not from what i've seen here in tennessee what about non-western uh, journalism or any other part of the world that you may follow has it been covered differently in in other countries Oh, absolutely. Uh, mm. First of all, there's a lot less skepticism in the coverage about what we should be doing, whether or not this is a crisis. They wouldn't. I mean, I'm thinking about. Um, I've looked at a lot of the New Zealand coverage, which is fascinating because oh, they've done such a wonderful job in yeah. uh, really keeping transmission down. Uh, there's no question of should we take precautions? Like, of course we should take precautions, or whether or not this is this dangerous. Of course it is dangerous. But it's also interesting how non-Western media have framed the US and what we've been doing and and kind of like a kind of a question mark there like okay you have uh, you know more deaths than any other spots of the world why aren't you doing this and kind of a lack of understanding of how we approach things which i would agree with I, that's interesting so that means that maybe for an average news broadcast the responsible editorial position is you have to actually cover basic public health information and so there isn't time to, to do maybe more of that individualized or more empathetic coverage. Is that kind of how you how you see it? I think there is. And we have seen in some spots. I'm thinking back to last spring when the Boston Globe uh, did an, an excellent uh, memorial section to all of those at the time who had died from COVID-19. Um, same with New York. We've seen that 
it's just unfortunately i don't think it's hit the spots that it really needs needs to hit it where we've seen the most resistance to modifying lifestyle modifying behavior to changing it i mean i think that they were already reinforcing what people were experiencing anywhere and already believing versus like uh you know places especially in the south and then up in north in the dakotas where people have been resistant to change behavior you know when i've talked with science journalists um on COVID calls one of the points that they make um predictable point, but a good point to be made is there's just not enough of them. And so it's not even a sort of editorial decision. Um, it's also that the science desks have been decimated. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and on an average science desk, you might not have even, you might have one health reporter if you have any, if you're a smaller newspaper. So you had a lot of journalists having to try to get up to speed in the midst of this, of, of this pandemic. I, I wonder how you see see that because then we're looking at the problem not only as a sort of set of editorial decisions but also mm -hmm. just in terms of personnel oh absolutely and especially as we've seen a lot of smaller media outlets and local newspapers go under or face really uh, you know hard financial times they are definitely understaffed I, I would completely agree with that that some of this is personnel some of this is uh, a lack of training in crisis communication for media professionals especially because uh, i would imagine that no media personnel has really experienced a pandemic. I mean, since we haven't had many, uh, fortunately, uh, and, and just getting at the story and how do we do that? And how do we really kind of bring these narratives to the public? Just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. And I'm talking right now with Katie Foss, Dr. Katie Foss, who's a media scholar and historian, wears many hats in her um, professional scholarship. And I know you think a lot about history. Uh, mm -hmm. And I wonder, and you mentioned a minute ago that you know previous pandemics, epidemics had been covered differently in the news. And I know you, um, I saw you've been uh, quoted in a couple of stories about Typhoid Mary. I know that's a, a subject you've talked about a little bit, written about. I wonder if you could tell, let's talk a little bit about history and, and the ways that maybe media coverage of past pandemics is different, mm -hmm. but also some of your concerns, mm -hmm. things we could learn from that, the past framings of pandemic that we should be taking on board now. Right. So first of all, unfortunately, some of the lessons that we can bring forward still continue to repeat themselves. And one would be uh, stigmatizing uh, already marginalized populations. Uh, and I bring that up with Mary Mallon because of course she was a woman and she was an immigrant and she was of low socioeconomic class and all of those absolutely influenced uh, her unfortunate position and also her lack of understanding of what asymptomatic carrier meant in the moment. Uh, so we've definitely seen kind of this cycling through of, of stigmatizing different groups. Uh, we also have seen similar patterns in terms of media coverage meaning that uh, media messages tend to de depict like the, the height of the crisis before the height actually hits, and then the light at the end of the tunnel, even before cases go down. Uh, that's a pretty typical pattern, even though we've seen it, of course, stretched out, or this, this idea of kind of waves, which you can really only identify waves, I think, in retrospect, not in, in, in the moment itself. Uh, and I would say this lack of understanding of public health continues too. Uh, many people do not understand what asymptomatic means. Even now in 2021, they don't understand. I think we're seeing that too. Uh, when, oh, I feel fine, therefore I'm not sick. Right? We see repeated uh, in the discourse uh, as justification why people were getting together, for example, for the holidays. Right? Uh, or the use of hashtag typhoid Mary or uh, 
COVID carry is another one that, that I recently saw, which I think is really unfair, especially to kind of a, a historicized Mary Mallon kind of taking her out of a moment in which people were still trying to figure out what asymptomatic even meant back then versus what we now know. Just for, for people who might not know that story as well, can you provide just a, just a little more context? Because, you know, those connections across time, a sort of basic misunderstanding of public health, and then also sort of exacerbating tensions around inequality in society and anti-immigrant feeling. We'd like to think we're past that. We're obviously not past that in 2020 and 2021. Tell us a little bit more about her story, if you would. Sure. So Mary Mallon was an Irish immigrant woman in New York who was a cook, uh, and she was known for making this peach ice cream. And I note that because that's part of why, unfortunately, she became uh, uh, I would say the typhoid spreader. So she was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. She didn't know it. She didn't understand what it was. And this is a horrible disease that's transmitted through contaminated food and water. So she'd make this ice cream as well as other meals for different wealthy families. Uh, and eventually um, a number of different typhoid outbreaks followed her. They traced it con in connection with this food. Uh, and she was arrested um, hospitalized and then sent to North Brother Island, uh, an island for mostly tuberculosis patients, uh, in a little house to live there by herself without a trial, without representation, for a couple of years until she finally had a trial. Uh, and that's where we got the name Typhoid Mary, because actually it, it came out in the press. They called her Typhoid Mary as part of this trial. Uh, and um, unfortunately, she was sentenced back to North Brother Island uh, and stayed there for a few more months until just a change in government allowed her to get free. She was uh, ordered never to cook again. However, she didn't have a lot of choices. As, as again, an Irish immigrant woman who was very poor, she went back to cooking because she didn't think she was making people sick. And then a couple of years later was again arrested and then spent the rest of her life back on North Brother Island. So it's a really good case for understanding kind of mm -hmm. this, uh, I would say this kind of tug of war between uh, personal liberty and also what's good for public health, but uh, as kind of wrapped up in a lack of understanding and a lack of options for someone of her status in that moment. This, uh, that's such a striking story. And the asymptomatic spread aspect is so resonant with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And the essential worker aspect is so resonant as well. I mean, this is a question I ask myself all the time, but I want to, I would like to get your take on it. That story has been available and scrutinized by historians and scholars for a long time. Mm -hmm. So why haven't we learned from that? Well, her story, her real story is actually usually not told. She's almost always villainized as if she used her, her food to intentionally harm people. I would say that that's part of it, is that we never really get her whole story. Even if the, in the comic book character, Typhoid Mary, she's a villain, right? Um, and I think that we don't, we don't learn from it because people side with, I would say, the public health authorities without really delving into why did this happen? I mean, I think it's the same thing that we see with a lot of public health inequity or inequality is that we don't step back to say, well, how can we have better the situation rather than blaming individual groups of people for their circumstances and their lack of adoption of healthy behaviors? Well, let's bring it back to the present a little bit, if we could. Um, like to know your perspective on the Biden plan. Mm -hmm. um, this is a very strange disaster in that we're getting um, 
and I use the word opportunity very with hesitance, but it is from a research perspective, we're going to learn a lot. I hope mm -hmm. that we've seen this disaster managed in an extreme mismanaged. I think it's fair to say in an extreme way, one direction. And now we're going to see what a whole different approach is mm -hmm. to the same disaster. What's your assessment of the Biden plan and also the communications, the sort of communications plan around it. I note that Jen Psaki, the, um, communications, uh, the press secretary for President Biden has been giving daily briefings, which itself has been a little jarring, I think, to a lot of people who are not used, used to that. So let me, let me hear some of your thoughts about, you know, how you see the pandemic being um, met by Biden so far. Well, first of all, just to see a plan was fantastic. <laughs> it, it almost felt like a comforting hug after a yeah. really, uh, yeah. you know, uh, a difficult time. Good, so good, good decent, is, boring government as representative. Boy, good, decent, boring government as representative. Boy, that is, and and I, I really liked and appreciated yeah. that part. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's really comprehensive. I think that the Biden plan hits on a number of different tenets that have to happen. Um, and I assume paired with then uh, kind of an implementation strategy for each of the goals identified. Uh, it's really comprehensive. Uh, it emphasizes community buy-in for different groups of people, which is absolutely crucial for this working, including indigenous people, people in rural communities, uh, people of color. I mean, there's just so many different ways that we have to have buy-in at that community level. Uh, focusing on changing public trust is really important, and we need to have uh, a kind of a plethora or an array of guidelines and ways to do that. Uh, and then I also appreciated how the Biden plan isn't just about vaccinating because just vaccinating is not going to work right now. We just don't have enough vaccines to for that to happen, as we know. So that this combination of both uh, immunize as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, in as safe as possible way as we can, combined with different mask mandates for federal buildings and transportation and other ways, uh, is really what we need right now. We need to have uh, a number of different levels that are attacked to really make this an effective COVID-19 response. talk about that vaccination piece a little bit. I've had a chance to talk on COVID calls with a lot of different experts who bring different vantage points to this. I'd be curious what you think about, particularly vaccine hesitancy, which we have tended to associate in recent years with the sort of anti-vaccination movement, which isn't just one movement, but um, vaccine hesitancy in COVID is, is different, I think. I, I wonder what you think about that. It is because we're not just going to talk about we're not just talking about like celebrity led anti-vaxxers like Jenny McCarthy. Right. And uh, and kind of her crusade against vaccines. But we also really need to get at why are different groups hesitant? And that's what's going to be critical to understanding how and, and persuading different groups of people. Uh, for example, uh, you know, young adults. Are, tend to be vaccine hesitant, not because they question vaccines, but because they don't believe that they need it. And, and that's going to be a different group of, of people. I'm thinking, especially because, of course, working with college students, that's a very different group than kind of the upper class, typically Caucasian anti-vaxxers uh, on, on their own missions, right? Mm -hmm. So 
for college students, it's going to be really important to identify social influencers, social media influencers that they listen to, celebrities that they listen to, and also make it really convenient. So uh, for that young adult hesitant group, make it convenient, make it something that you need to do in order to enroll in a college class or to work, uh, for example, at a retail job or an other kind of essential worker uh, position um, and make it free. Mm -hmm. I would say, so those are gonna be different tactics than for example, vaccine hesitancy among communities of color who are very understandably um, vaccine hesitant because of the long history of wrongdoings to those populations. Uh, and that, in, for those groups, I would say the community buy-in, having leaders of the community be the ones to deliver the messages and also model vaccination for the rest of the community is going to be so critical. Having, uh, for example, physicians of color, a part of the community, um, be the ones to administer the vaccine. So it, it really depends on which group of people we're talking about and having a specific targeted strategy for those groups for this to be effective to overcome that hesitancy. So, you know, that's really interesting to think about it in, in terms of reaching these these different mm -hmm. groups. Um, I wonder, again, coming back to media, how you would assess the way that mainstream media has has done with this so far. So I've seen, you know, um, vaccination stories seem to fall in a few different mm -hmm. buckets. Early on, it was, um, the heroic nurse, and I don't mean that facetiously, the real heroic nurse. Yeah, I remember that. Getting yeah. the vaccine and everybody's just weeping because, you know, these people have mm -hmm. every single day put their life on the line. Very quickly following that, though, we got the, um, the you're not going to vaccinate me, big government stories. Mm -hmm. And it, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of oxygen for those feel-good stories, um, those mm -hmm. more human interest stories. But I, I'm not following it as analytically as you. And I wonder, again, sort of like, what are you looking for in terms of media coverage of the vaccination issue? Well, I, I think that we need to acknowledge any kind of shortcomings, like, for example, what you're talking about what happened in Philadelphia in the last few days. But at the same time, we need overwhelmingly positive covers that also factual. So focus on facts combined with emotional experiences to demonstrate the importance of this. Uh, I actually th think that we're seeing less reluctance right now because it's still priority groups. The people that were mm -hmm. getting vaccinated, except for some pockets of uh, holdouts I, I, I've read in Chicago and California and other parts of health workers who are choosing not to get the vaccines, um, which uh, that's a whole other area. Uh, but I, I think overwhelmingly it needs to be positive, it needs to be factual, and it needs to be, this is what we need to do, right? And we need to have even more of these stories. And I think that those social media posts are really important too. The vaccine selfie uh, used in the correct way with enthusiasm and facts is, is going to be critical for setting the stage for the next groups to be willing to get vaccinated. Just to come back to this issue about... Um how you could reach different target groups. What about mm -hmm. Trump supporters? Uh, well, that is going to be the most, uh, I would say they are going to be the most difficult group to reach, uh, of course, partially because of the echo chambers and that they keep going farther and farther away from mainstream media. And of course, I'm generalizing right now. Um, with Trump supporters, I would say that these different mandates in which you have to mask up, in which you have to um, follow, you know, six feet apart in which you have to experience, at least in most parts of the country, lockdowns and other things that make everyday life uncomfortable. And the vaccine is then framed as the way out of it. 
So I don't think you're going to get it through ideological means. I think it's going to come through an enforcement frame that prompts people to get vaccines. Uh, certainly more businesses that say, if you want to continue working here, you have to get vaccinated will help. I would also say uh, having some people that are Trump supporters, but then decide to get vaccinated and then being vocal about it will help as well. But I mean, that's a difficult group. It's a difficult group to reach. It is, and it's not a conversation that I would have ever imagined we would need need to have. But you know, there's a lot of Trump supporters who also wear masks. It, mm -hmm. It's not as if people go all in one way right. or another ideologically. But I, I like your mm -hmm. suggestions there, and also just maybe still some hope that as months go by, we get back to sort of boring governance. Yes. That you take some of the heat. Uh, mm -hmm. out of conversation around wearing a mask or, or getting a vaccine and just bring it back to just like something that isn't even a matter of, of discussion, right? one, one would hope. Um, we're almost up on, on time. I, I would like to just give you a chance to talk a little bit. You've been very prolific during this, this period, as a lot of research scholars and disaster researchers have been in COVID. Mm -hmm. What are some of the big questions on your mind right now that have been provoked in the last year? Things that you either thought Hey, I had thought I had a handle on that. Now I got to rethink it or new areas um, of research mm -hmm. that you see opening up that maybe weren't as open before. Yeah, that's a, a great couple of questions. I would say the biggest thing has just been, wow, this is what it's like to experience this. And even though I, I lived in the archives for quite a while, uh, looking at these past epidemics, I, I never really got at what, you know, what it was like to live this, right? And, and a, a lot of it has been just mundane and, and kind of capturing that in those mundane moments, but also just uh, how, how does this happen? How do we move forward as a country and as a world? Uh, and I would say from my perspective, how do we make sure that we're telling a lot of the different stories and perspectives that were never told in the past, that we assume the positions, but we never got the stories, for example, of the indigenous populations in Nome, Alaska during the 1925 diphtheria ep uh, epidemic. So those are the kind of stories that I wanna make sure that uh, different people are gonna capture and then tell and then retell and preserve so that future generations can look back on this moment and understand not just the typical person who gets whose story gets told, but a lot of different perspectives. I had a great discussion the other day with a round table of historians. I wish you'd been mm -hmm. in that with Tiago Sariva and, uh, Sandra Adair and um, Cindy Ermas, and we were talking about just this point, and we were brainstorming a little bit about what we think the archive needs. Now, historians get a little twitchy yeah. sometimes because it's not really our job always to make the archive. Right. There's archivists who are pros at that and librarians. Mm -hmm. But I do wonder, to your point, what do you think sh we should be attentive to? And people who are not historians too, what kind of things should people be collecting? What could they be collecting at this time that'll help us make sense of this? And I, and I think, by the way, it's not making sense of this in some vast distant future. It could even just be next. It's amazing how quickly people forget. Two, three years mm -hmm. on, what should be going in the archive, do you think? Well, not just the typical kind of mainstream news coverage. I also want the digital archives of tweets uh, that were trending at different moments, of TikTok videos that people were making because they were in lockdown or in quarantine, uh, of different YouTube videos that suddenly became popular, like how to make sourdough bread. I mean, all of that is going to be part of this story as much as 
uh, kind of the tragedy as well as the debates about masks and about schools opening. Uh, all that will kind of come together to tell a story. And also then of the lighter side, uh, I wrote a piece for the Smithsonian on what they did back in 1918, that people writing poems and songs about their experiences. We have to remember that too. It's not just about uh, the most dire moments uh, that we experience sure. uh, and, and as we kind of move forward and, and we try to tell this story. I loved your, your insight there about living through it. And those of us who study disaster, we know that the mm -hmm. sources skew towards action and not inaction, mm -hmm. right? So um, your observation is a great one. I think it resonates with a lot of people. Living through this terrible disaster has been really boring, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it, it we've, been, we've been distant from each other. We're not able to do the normal things. Those of mm -hmm. us who have the privilege to be distant, Right. And I think for other people, and we haven't heard enough from them, it's been a constant daily um, threat. Mm -hmm. And that itself becomes boring. Some people describe that too. You just get used to a certain mm -hmm. amount of risk and then you don't want to talk about it anymore. That itself is, becomes part of the mundane. I, I think we don't leave enough space to talk about mm -hmm. those silences and just the sort of apathy mm -hmm. of it all. But I don't know how you capture that, really. I don't know either. I, I think a lot of the blogs would help with that about people expressing or, or you know, for example, social media posts about, oh, my gosh, we have to try to homeschool our kid through, uh, you know, learning how to simplify algebraic expressions, even though that was 30 years ago that we did that. <laughs> yeah, uh, leave so me up. Yeah. And then also write this into pop culture. I mean, some shows have already started uh, of those kind of different entertainment venues of fictionalizing this experience. And that's important, too, like Grey's Anatomy and Blackish just among some of the shows, because those are the things I think the narratives that later generations will experience, more the fictional narratives actually, even than kind of the day-to-day -day content. We spend long days talking to ourselves these days mm -hmm. in, in these empty rooms. Uh, and to our dogs. It's really, it's really something. Um, any, anything else you wanted to throw in? I know we, we probably need to, to uh, close the conversation, but I've really enjoyed talking with you. Um, what, what's your next project? Uh, a number of projects related directly to all of the different COVID-19 stuff, I, I would say. Um, I would like to study the fictional narratives. Hmm. I enjoy the fiction. So uh, along with some vaccine hesitancy projects, but also I want to look at the fiction and I want to look backwards. And and I'm, I'm looking at kind of vaccine naming campaigns of the past is something I'm working on right now or as a popular piece. So I don't know, I kind of the land of ideas. But I, I would like to just say that we have to remember that in the past, they made it through this. They made it through the, the epidemics, they made it through the outbreaks, they made it through the pandemics. Not everybody, unfortunately, but I, I want to be optimistic that we can get to that place again. Sorry, no. we, I, <laughs> you were in the middle of a really great uh, call to optimism and my entire technology just broke oh, down. I'm alone. The second time that's happened to me this month, the first time was when I was interviewing my father and uh, oh. he was completely, you know, it's fine, just like you, he didn't give up. Um, but I, everybody else heard what you said and I'll, 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 I can be a good, we'll go just back. Just to have hope, that, that's this, all I was trying for. The sense that, you know, perseverance and moving through these these mm -hmm. periods is kind of a historical historical constant. Mm -hmm. well, I want to thank uh, Katie Foss for coming on today and remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls 
um, usually at 5 p.m. every weekday. Today was a little bit earlier to accommodate uh, Congressman Boyle's schedule. And I want to thank uh, you, Katie, for also um, adjusting your time to that. And we'll see everybody on Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, stay healthy. Thanks again. Thank you for having me.